Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. With me today, I have Dr. Maureen Singer, and am I saying that correctly? Okay. Um, so Dr. Maureen Singer, and she's from Nashville, Tennessee. You guys might have seen her in the I Believe series that we had in Nashville last year in October for the I Believe seminar. Um, she was there during the metastatic discussions. And um, the stuff that we talked about in those discussions, it just it was obviously important enough to, you know, to to our community, to me, like to want to bring her back. And so I just asked if she would come back and talk to us a little more about just from her perspective as a, you know, as a psychologist, um, in navigating a cancer diagnosis. So I'm so glad you're here. Um, before I introduce you fully, I want to just run through a couple of quick announcements. Uh, we do have posted on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, you should be able to go to any of those channels and you can find the links to all of the current walks. So we have the looking for a cure, which is our 5k walk for ocular melanoma. And this is going to be taking place all across the country. And I think we have about 14 locations um, starting in May and going till the end of the year. So if you're not in an area where there's a walk, hopefully there's only one, maybe a state away. And if you want to plan to travel, then we hope you'll join us. Uh, but most important thing is to sign up, make your team, get your friends and family in your community on board, and then start fundraising for ocular melanoma um, in your community. So we are so glad and so grateful to have Gavin and Hannah helping us to orchestrate all of these walks, and we hope you guys will sign up. If you have any questions, just email us. You can find us at contact at acureinsight.org. Okay, so that's all I've got for announcements right now. So just by way of introduction, Dr. Sanger uh, has a PhD in psychology, and she works for Tennessee Oncology, providing counseling to cancer patients and survivors. She received her doctorate in clinical psychology from Vanderbilt University, and she trained at, trained at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, prior to joining Tennessee Oncology, she was an assistant professor of pediatrics at Vanderbilt, where she was uh, able to work with the cancer and sickle cell disease programs. So, Dr. Sanger, thank you again for being here and <laughs> for your patience. You too. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, um, we wanted to talk today about just the, the idea of protecting our mental health as patients. And I think really it's important to note that, you know, really anything that we talk about, you know, applicable to patients can mostly be translated. Like the tools that we can use as a patient can also be translated to caregivers, to children of patients. And so it's important, I think, for us to recognize that like, we're going to talk a little more specifically to patients, but if you're not a patient, this doesn't stop applying to you or stop being helpful. Yes. Do you think that would be fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Great point. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your background. What drew you to the world of psychology and specifically supporting people in the cancer community? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I think I've always uh, been drawn to the helping professions. And but it was really in, when I was in graduate school in psychology that I developed a real interest in health psychology. So how the ways that 
psychology could uh, translate to helping people with acute and chronic illnesses, helping them with medical procedures. And uh, at the time I was in graduate school, which was several years ago now, the field of health psychology was kind of an emerging specialty. And, and so that's what I kind of focused on. And I had the privilege of doing um, some training at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And, uh, and it was really there where I developed this deep interest in and, and compassion for people going through cancer and their families. And that interest has, has kind of stayed all these years. I've done some other um, work in, in health psychology, but over the last several years have, have come back to helping people with cancer. And it, it's been uh, you know, incredibly rewarding and something that, that I find inspiring as well. I think I learn as much oftentimes from the people I talk to as hopefully they learn from me. Thank you for, for just explaining that. And I, I feel like it's important to just note that like, you know, people in these kinds of professions, whether they're oncologists, whether they're therapists, like they're drawn to them for a reason. And, and usually that passion is something that then, you know, I feel like drives excellent care for patients and, and it makes it so that, um, the patients I'm sure that come to you feel very comfortable in, you know, in just engaging in a, a conversation about their mental health and in supporting and in, in knowing that you, they have your support. Um, yeah, and I so, um, yeah, and hopefully they benefit from kind of my knowledge and, and the skills and strategies I share with them. But I also find that um, many people really benefit from hearing what I'm able to share with them about how other people in their circumstance cope, and and just knowing that their reactions or how they're doing is similar to others, that the struggles they have are similar to other people going through it. Um, I think is 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 very, is really valuable. No, oh, I think that's such a good point. Um, so just to kind of give people a background, because you work at Tennessee Oncology, um, you work closely with Meredith McKean. Um, and so Meredith McKean is, for those of you who in our community don't know her, she is one of the medical oncologists who focuses on helping patients who have uveal melanoma or metastatic um, ocular melanoma. So I think it's safe to say you have a few patients that you work with who have the same cancer that we do. So if you were to share, you know, generalized stories about some of those patients, like it's because you're speaking from experience. Yeah. So I just want to make sure that we like articulate that. Um, so let's just kind of talk about general reasons for protecting your mental health. Like when you're facing a cancer diagnosis, why does it become, why does it become more important? Like from your perspective and in your opinion, like to protect your mental health and to focus on your mental health? Yeah. Well, because as, you know, as um, you know, and those that are listening, I'm sure um, cancer affects more than a person's physical health and well-being, um, right? The, uh, it often takes the toll on a person's um, emotions and, uh, and their mental health. And, you know, the stress that comes from a cancer diagnosis or a, a cancer recurrence or a metastasized cancer uh, can be overwhelming. And, uh, and so anxiety, depression are, are not unusual among people who are going through this really stressful or traumatic event. And, uh, and when we're dealing with anxiety or depression or just emotional overwhelm, um, it can um, uh, affect our physical well-being in the sense that, right, maybe uh, we, we don't eat as well as, as we should or we don't uh, move our bodies, we don't uh, it, can disrupt our sleep. Um, it, sometimes it makes it hard to get to medical appointments, to to stick to medical regimens and take medications, and so so our mental health can affect our, our kind of health behaviors. 
Um, but it also can affect, um, you know, our, our body image, our sense of um, uh, just our sense of physical well-being, and um, and so you know we often talk about the connection between the body and the mind. You know, our physical health can affect our mental well-being, and our mental well-being, our knowledge, our, our um, emotions, beliefs, attitudes can affect our physical well-being. So, so mind and body are connected. Um, so, um, when we're dealing with a chronic illness, it's going to affect us mentally, emotionally, and so tending to that as well as to the physical part means that we're tending to the kind of our whole person, our whole being, and and that's what's you know going to um, contribute to um, overall you know, better um, better coping. Okay. So, I mean, I feel like that's good to draw that connection. And um, I want to kind of latch on to one of the things that you talked about, just because I know this is something that's a little more unique to people who go through our diagnosis. Um, and I think that most of the people you probably initially see, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the people you probably initially see, they are coming to Dr. McKean um, primarily for a METS diagnosis. So um, is that fair to say, or do you feel like you also see some patients who have yet to metastasize? I see both. Okay. So let's just talk first about kind of the initial diagnosis phase. Um, because I think one of the big things that, that kind of gets, I don't want to say downplayed because it, it's not that it's not talked about, but it just kind of doesn't, it doesn't take precedence. And I think that it really does affect our mental health as patients is the idea that our eye is affected. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, 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 signature piece of your appearance, something changes, whether it's because you lose the eye and you end up with an enucleated, um, enucleated eye, whether it's because, or, or, you know, or just that it looks a little bit different, or maybe it only looks different to you. Like, because sometimes I think our perceptions are different than other people's perceptions, but the bottom line is something has happened to your eye. You are aware of it. And on some level, you're probably physically seeing that difference every single day or not seeing in some cases. <laughs> um, so what are some things that patients can do as they're facing this initial appearance change um, combined with, you know, vision loss of some degree, varying from little, little vision loss to complete vision loss? Uh, what would be maybe some tools or some resources that you would suggest that they lean into um, for kind of coping with that kind of like with that, uh, that stress on their, their mental psyche? Because I feel like it, it does play a big role. Yeah, absolutely. So not only is there like the, the physical effects, like say the impact on vision, and but um, but it's a it's a one of the more it's a visible um, more visible cancer oftentimes, and, and that cre that creates a whole other set of issues. Um, right there's the self consciousness um, that people often experience, um, and it's also kind of a a very visible and constant reminder that. You know that you have cancer, um, and um, and that's that can be really hard. Um, so, I think um, you know one. I think one of the strategies is to um, uh, not only uh, inform yourself about the um, the disease and what it involves. Because at the beginning, there's so much there's so much um, to learn. There's so much that seems uncertain. So, um, so asking questions, informing yourself about what what this involves um, and how to navigate this this disease um, is important. But also, I think being um, able to talk to other people about it, um, and uh, and so that people understand you know, um, what you're going through, that that how your vision is affected, and how that might affect 
um, different of uh, your activities and, and why you may look different. Um, uh, I think being able to share that with people um, can, can help their understanding and, and also um, enable them to perhaps um, provide the kinds of support that, that might be useful um, along the way. Um, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think uh, um, another um, useful tool and, and one of the core principles that I often talk to people about is um, this idea of, of taking control of what you can. Um, so there's a lot about going through cancer and cancer treatment that's out of one's control. Um, and that's one of the, the hardest parts emotionally and mentally in dealing with cancer is that so much of this is out of your control. You're kind of thrust into this world of uncertainty, um, which makes it uh, can make it difficult to to plan, can make it um, uh, and can make a lot um, of things difficult. And so um, so trying to um, to acknowledge that there's a lot of this that, that you can't control but that there are things within this experience that, that you um, do have some control over and trying to focus on those things um, can be, I think, one of the, the keys to coping. So, for example, um, learning about your type of cancer, your cancer treatment, um, how to take care of yourself from a medical perspective, something you have control over, um, taking care of your body, um, nourishing it, getting decent rest, um, moving your body um, and exercising as you can um, uh, is, is something you have control over. Staying connected to, to friends and to activities that are important to you um, is something that you, you have some control over. Um, sometimes establishing routines, you know, when lots of things are uncertain in our lives, um, uh, creating routines um, and sticking to routines can provide some structure in this um, uh, predictability uh, in life, and, and that can um, help with help um, balance that um, uh, that living with uncertainty. Um, you know, setting goals. Um, you know, uh, people with cancer. I think the task is to find ways to live well um, with this really difficult disease. Um, so um, um, setting short-term goals, um, having things, scheduling things to look forward to. Um, you know, those are some, some of the things that you have control over and that um, are useful to focus on um, and, and uh, can help with coping. No, I love that. And I, I like, um, I feel like we talk about it. We talk about it every single time that we talk about mental health. And it's just that, again, like you said, that idea of like we control what we can when everything is out of control as uh, Olaf from Frozen yeah. so eloquently stated it. Um, but I think it's interesting, like, as you're going through some of these examples, um, I mean, I can recognize them now, like in hindsight as things that are, you know, things that I would seek to control as a patient, mm. but to hear it like listed out, um, I feel like that helps on some level, you know, it, just recognizing that there are like, it, it can be, it can be really, really easy. And, and I'm sure you know this, that our brain, our brains are wired to go to the negative. And so they're, that's just, that's just part of survival. Like that's just how they work. Um, they're going to be aware of the threats and they're going to be aware of the potential things that could go wrong. But if we can kind of shift that focus, not that it makes those things go away, it doesn't make away, it doesn't make, you know, the fact that you have a tumor in your eye and you lost your vision 
It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make scansiety or the scans looming six months, a year from now, three months from now. It doesn't make them disappear or make the information in them any less scary or daunting. But to then find the things that you can shift your focus to that are controllable, like learning what you can, doing the things you love, um, taking care of your body in the ways that feel good and, and authentic to you. And even just like one of the things you mentioned was just planning things to look forward to, like, because I feel like that's, that's such a key thing. Like a lot of times, you know, we're faced with this cancer diagnosis. We're told, I mean, I know maybe not all of us are told this now. I hope not many of us are told that there's, you know, something terrible was going to happen in the next year Mm -hmm. after your immediate diagnosis. But, but I know that 10 years ago, that was the case. Mm -hmm. Many patients were told, okay, like get your affairs in order. Like you don't have, you don't have much time. And so thankfully we don't have to deal with that in the same ways but I think that the the level of kind of fear, the residual fear from that is still there. And it's still very much, it still very much feels like that. And so to then kind of shift back the focus from, okay, what is going to be happening in 10 years from now? And to just say, okay, what's going to happen a month from now? What am I going to do 10 years or, you know, 10 months from now? What am I going to do a year from now that I'm looking forward to that has me excited about life, um, that has me excited about living? Because I feel like one of the things, um, this, this has something more to do with, with the grieving cycle, but I think it still applies. Like I had a, I had a miscarriage in October of 2018 and then I got pregnant again three months later with my third baby who is now three. And I remember at one point being so terrified in the first trimester of like the what if of what could happen because I had already had one loss and I knew that it was possible. Like now it was no longer, it was no longer something detached from me. It was something that had happened to me. It was something that had happened to my family. And I, I didn't feel like I could handle that loss again. And one of the things that my mom um, had told me was this idea that like, we don't need to grieve it twice. Mm. You know, you don't need, you don't need to be so afraid of the what if and the possibility that it could go wrong and then have it actually go wrong and have grieved it two times in a row. So instead of living in a way where, you know, you're afraid that cancer is going to take your life and then maybe maybe inevitably it does in 10 years. Maybe it does. We don't know. But don't do it twice. Don't let it take your life twice, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, yeah. And that's a, yeah, I think that's a really uh, important perspective. And, um, uh, and right, our, our minds are really great at churning up lots of what ifs, right? Um, you know, and, 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 and you're right, we're wired to kind of uh, our, our minds have what we call a negativity bias. We tend to focus on the negative, uh, worry about the negative, right? How often do we find ourselves saying, oh, what if this good thing happens? Or what if that good thing happens? That's, that's not what we what if about, right? We what if about the, 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 uh, the scary things or the um, negative things. So, so, it, um, so it's really about um, kind of making a conscious effort to focus one's attention on um, away from the what ifs on, onto other things, and and I sometimes I use the expression you know, shifting from the what if to the what is. Um, you know, hmm, I like what that. If, what is it that's you know what is it that I'm dealing with right now? What is it that I can do today in the service of my health and the service of my emotional well being? Um, what is it that I know today? As of today, I'm alive and I have things that I can um, uh, perhaps look forward to and plan. Um, and uh, and it takes, uh, but it's not easy to do. It's easy to say, oh, shift from what if to what is. In, re- in reality, it's, it's that's a difficult thing to do. Um, and it takes a kind of conscious effort and, and, and decision to focus the attention um, on the present, which 
which is another, uh, I think, really important coping tool, which is trying to um, live in the present. And again, a lot of people hear that phrase, and um, and it's uh, easier said than ab- done sometimes, ab- for sure. Absolutely, but um, but when we really immerse ourselves in the present, what you know, and um, when we're more mindful or attentive to what is it that we're working on right now, who is it that we're talking to. Um, we uh, it really does enrich uh, our lives in ways that um, that can be very um, useful. Um, and you you brought up a you know the example of um, or talked about planning right um, having things to look forward to. We said a little bit about that and um, um, and and I just wanted to emphasize that because um, many of the people I talk to when they're going through cancer treatment and they're living with such uncertainty is. You know, they have this sense of, well, I don't want to, um, like, I don't want to jinx myself. Like this idea of somehow, if I plan something, and maybe that's kind of um, asking for for trouble. Or so we uh, we can develop these kind of um, uh, uh, irrational fears. Irrational fears. Um, um, uh, kind of magical thinking about. Um, yeah. That, no, I, I, I can recognize that pattern in myself. Like, but what I can say is that like initially when I was diagnosed, at least for me, it was, it was during COVID. So there was a lot of kind of like less that I could plan to do outside of my own sphere. Right. I couldn't really plan a vacation. I couldn't take my kids to the, you know, to somewhere like Disneyland or something like that. Um, I couldn't think of something kind of grandiose or, and not that it has to be that you can have little things to look forward to. It can absolutely just be looking forward to a glass of wine at the end of the day on the scans, <laughs> like, like whatever it is, it does not have to be big, but those were kind of the things that my brain would go to and go, okay, but if you plan this, then like, is that, you know, again, like you said, like, is that asking for something to go wrong? Is that asking for something? And and I was fortunate enough to have an ocular oncologist who at the time that I was, I was ready to like drop the plans of the fun that we had planned as a family and just focus on my treatment. And she said, no, 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 you're going to go have fun. We'll take care of this when you get back. We can't get it together faster anyway, because I was going to have brachytherapy. And so it's like, we have a timeline here. We're gonna, we're gonna do it, but you're gonna still go have fun with your family. And that was, I feel like that was such a gift for me as a patient to have my doctor tell me to focus on that because then it was, it was then something that became not easier, but it it just became a little bit um, more ingrained in me to practice because it was something that I had done from the get-go from diagnosis was plan something to look forward to, even if there's hard stuff, even if there's difficult news that happens. So sometimes I find myself doing it almost by accident, but like just planning a trip, planning something that I'm excited about, planning to do something different or unique. Um, but I can say that the more times I do it, the quieter that voice gets that voice that, that is, you know, well, what if something bad happens? The more times that I just plan the fun thing, whatever it is, big or small, the less that voice has a say, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that's a great point. And also seems like it's likely that those things will, will actually happen and you'll enjoy yourselves. And, uh, and, and sure, there are, there might be times when you plan something and uh, right and, and something unexpected happens. And so, um, so I think this idea of um, sometimes of, of planning something but holding it holding it lightly. In other words, you know, um, recognize that um, yeah, many things in life can happen unexpectedly and and that can disrupt plans. But I think better to to plan, hold it lightly, knowing that it might have to, to change. Um, but, um, but I think that's, 
um, uh, that's a healthier approach than right than saying I'm not going to plan anything, so 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 I won't be disappointed. Um, again, it's it's just really about finding ways to live well with cancer, with the emphasis on live, right? Um, and um, uh, and and doing those, continuing to connect to things that are important and meaningful um, to you. Yeah, no, I think that makes it makes all the difference for sure. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit. Like I know we've talked mostly about initial diagnosis, but let's just kind of address the idea that okay, say you're doing these things, right? You're trying to focus on living in the present. You're doing the things that you feel you know good about as far as taking good care of yourself. You're finding things to look forward to. Maybe maybe you've implemented some of these strategies, and then you get thrown the curveball of there's something on your scans. Um, what happens like for us psychologically, like what happens in our brain that causes us to, cause I know, I know from my experience, what happened for me is it was like, like, boom, like I have nothing. I don't know what to do. Like it was like an instant of, and it didn't last forever, but like, it was this moment of feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm floundering, I'm drowning, I'm helpless. And I have no control over anything. And it, it, it kind of took some, some reeling myself back in over time. Um, and just to, to really, I mean, for me, at least I had to sit with the panic for a while and that was a few days to a week. Sometimes each time I would get kind of a new influx of information. Um, but what happens like in our brains that causes that, like that causes that response? Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, uh, it's essentially that kind of fight or flight response. So, uh, so when we, when we're confronted with a threat or a challenge, something that feels like, um, uh, dangerous to us and, and a diagnosis of cancer or cancer recurrence is certainly one of those things. Um, we, you know, our, our brains uh, go into fight or what we call fight or flight mode. And there's actually three, there's fight, flight, or freeze. Um, so sometimes we, right, um, uh, we get angry and upset or we get tearful and, and withdrawn or sometimes we just feel paralyzed. Um, um, in the, in the wake of, um, of this, this threat now, which is, which is the cancer, um, recurrence or, or, or metastases. Um, and so, um, so I think initially it's about managing those emotions, um, and, uh, and, and giving yourself a chance to do that. And, um, you know, we as humans don't like to, um, are not very good at sitting with difficult emotions, right? When, when we feel, um, upset, when we feel down, when we feel, particularly when we feel anxious and scared and, and fearful, um, it's our tendency to want to avoid those emotions, to distract. Yeah. Well, they're, they're uncomfortable. They're, like you said, like they physically become uncomfortable in our absolutely. bodies. Um, and, um, and it's not to say that um, distraction and some of, and sometimes, and we all do that, and we all need to do that sometimes. But um, but there is value in um, in in naming those emotions. I'm feeling really scared right now, or gosh, I'm I'm you know I'm so sad, or um, to to notice the emotions, to name them, um, and to to sit with them for a bit, and uh, and then find ways to to comfort yourself. Um, but, um, uh, so there's going to be a lot of emotions that come up around a, um, whether it's an initial diagnosis or recurrence or metastasis situation. Um, and, uh, and, and 
naming the notions and, and, um, and is, is a way of, of uh, is a way of coping. Um, and, uh, and then I think the, the next important piece there is, is sharing that information with, with people who you're close to or you're comfortable sharing that with in, in order to, to get the support um, of others because that's, as humans, that's one of the um, main reasons that we cope is by, um, uh, is by that social support by, and there's, um, and sometimes we need emotional support. Sometimes we need logistical support. Um, um, sometimes we uh, just need someone to, to sit and, uh, and, and just sit quietly next to us. Um, but um, we need support in these difficult times. Um, and, um, and so um, being able, being willing to share um, what you're, going through and, and um, eliciting that support um, is, is also um, key, especially in those, um, in the wake of a, of a recurrence. Um, and uh, so it's, I think it's first tending to the, the emotional distress and upset of it and, um, and then um, working with your medical team to, to talk about next steps and, um, and then reestablishing some routines and taking care of yourself um, and, uh, um, and getting um, uh, getting back to to some semblance of a uh, normal yeah, yeah 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 like like whatever I mean it, it it seems almost flippant to say that but like it it really is like there's there's that period of time when you're feeling it and it's really big and it's really scary and it's heavy and that's normal and and that's normal. <laughs> and then you have some, some time to sit with that. And, and there's, there's really like, and I think you've alluded to this, but there, there is no definitive timeline on what does that look like? And really we could argue that there might be waves of it, right? There might be waves of that anger and that frustration and that fight or flight, that, um, fight, flight, or freeze kind of response where you might have a couple of weeks of feeling really crappy and feeling all of the feelings really heavily. And then a month where you're just zeroed in, you're laser focused on what you can control. You're taking good care of yourself. You're working with your doctor. You have a plan and then you get new information or maybe you don't even get new information. Maybe you're just told, okay, you're fine for now. And then you're forced to kind of sit back with everything that you just went through and, and accept it, like accept that it happened. And I think that that can sometimes resurface those feelings of, of that, you know, that anger. And, and really, I think it, it comes down to that, that grief of like grieving the life you had before, while at the same time, like trying your darn hardest, like to accept the life that you now live and what it looks like and what it, what is involved with medical appointments and the community that you're a part of and, and really any of the pieces of cancer that we could grow to resent. Like we have to get to a place where we both hold space for the fact that it's difficult and we're mad about it, but that we also accept it. And it's just this, I don't know how to make it smash together, but somehow it's like Play-Doh of two different colors that gets mixed up and, and we make it work. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, there's, um, uh, yeah, sorry, something you said a minute ago that um, that triggered a thought and um, I'm trying to, trying to pull it back. Um, um, pull it back now. I'm sorry, I lost that. So, 
that's okay. Maybe we'll we'll come back to Plato or something else. <laughs> um, so, okay, we're dealing with these difficult emotions. I love that you talked about just making space for those difficult emotions. And then also, you know, kind of recognizing that that the the tools that you may have implemented initially, like an initial diagnosis, those now come back into play, right? They cycle back. And, and it's kind of like the toolbox tools that we have in it can now be, you know, the hammer was used on this piece of wood and now we're going to use it on this piece of wood. Like we have the tools, we're using those tools in practice. And now we've had this reeling experience where something changed or something was scarier again. And we now have to put them back into practice again. Yeah, so it's, just, it's really this it's continual um, uh, experience of of adapting, um, and mm-hmm. so yeah, that's a good something word for it. else comes along, and it's uh, how do I adapt to this? And and uh, I did just think of what I was going to say a minute ago when you were talking about um, grief, and it is very much like a, a grief process, and, um, and and as it comes in waves and comes and goes, and um, and the thing about grief is that it's it's not something that we really ever get over. Um, it's something that we tend to. And so, um, you know, sometimes I, I talk to people and they say, oh, I, I thought I had, you know, gotten to this place of acceptance or I had gotten past this, but here it is again. And maybe I didn't, you know, I did something wrong or I, you know, I, I'm not trying hard enough, right? And somehow it feels like a failure when in fact it's just, it's part of the process, those, those ways. Grief comes and goes, and it whether it's loss of the loved one, loss of our health, um, and um, and so it's not about eliminating the waves because we can't. Um, it's about managing the waves and, and riding them out, if you will, um, uh, as you go through this this journey of uh, ups and downs. Um, no, I love I love what you said there. It's not about it's not about you know making the waves go away. It's about riding them as they come. And I've talked, I feel like I've talked about that before, like maybe, or written about it in my, like in my own personal kind of journal or social media posts and things. It's just that like, like it really does come in waves that like sometimes, sometimes I'm fine. Like even dealing with a metastatic diagnosis, I never thought I would be able to like say that when I was first diagnosed because initially like I was a wreck. Um, But but it really does come in waves and sometimes it hits harder than others and for different reasons and for reasons that kind of come out of left field, like that I don't, I mean, this is right, this is left, <laughs> but like, you know, they come out of left field and they're, sometimes they're things that are triggering to us, I think, as patients that we didn't really anticipate could be triggering things like holidays, things like, you know, different milestones with kids or grandkids, um, things that suddenly stick out differently in our brains Um, so can we just talk briefly about some of those kinds of milestones and like kind of just getting to a point where we can just be aware that they're, they're there and that we're going to be confronted with those, those kind of triggers. Um, what are maybe like, can you, can you think of maybe a a specific coping strategy that you suggest to patients for dealing with those triggers when they arise? Cause they're, they're not bad things, but they do cause that feeling of like all of the grief and all of the the uncertainty, all of those things kind of well back up. Yeah. Um, so I think um, the first um, uh, the first uh, thing to to note is that um, right that, that those milestone events um, that those um, feelings the feelings of grief or sadness or worry or fear um, are, are, um, are normal and and, and natural um, and uh, and I think when you, when you're 
aware of that and can anticipate that, then there are, um, it, uh, it makes it a, perhaps a bit easier to cope with, um, and it doesn't take one by such, such surprise um, when it happens. Um, and, uh, and again, I think making space to, um, uh, to acknowledge or name, feel those emotions when they, when they come up uh, is, is part of the, the coping as well. Um, so can I just ask a question when you say making space for emotions, what would be some, some tools, some strategies, some kind of ways that like tangible ways that like somebody can make space for emotions. We talked about naming them. So like we could, we could verbally come out and say, I'm feeling upset. You know, I'm feeling sad. Um, I'm feeling grief, but what are some other kind of tools that people could use? Um, I guess I'm just thinking like, I don't know. And I know like one that comes to mind for me at least is, is, um, holding space for my feelings. Like if I don't have time, cause I'm, I'm a mom of three, I have a job, I have like lots of things going on. Sometimes I don't have time to just wallow in everything all the time. But if I don't allow space for it at all and I push it down, then it comes out in other ways. I get angry, I get irritable. Um, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of things kind of, there's this balance. But one of the things that I have taken to doing is just trying to allow three to five minutes a day when I'm in a really heavy emotional place that I will just sit with and, and feel and cry and think about all the what ifs and all the negative things. And I'll just, I'll put a timer on my watch and I'll set a timer for five minutes. And then when the timer's done, then I'm like, okay. And then I center myself and I move on and I like, just let it go. Um, but that's, that's just one strategy, yeah. I guess. So can you maybe name another yeah. two? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, um, that's a really great strategy. And, and you're right, the waves aren't going to, of motion or um, uh, aren't going to come always at, at convenient times when, when you have the time and the space just to, to stop and sit um, with it. And, and, um, uh, and that's okay. Um, but when you do have time, and, and, and sometimes it's about making time, um, whether it's three to five minutes, like you do, Danae, or whether it's um, um, uh, you know setting aside other times um, in your day or on a weekend, or and maybe in the evening when things are quieter, to um, to kind of reflect on emotions. And and um, the process you were just talking about is um, is very similar to um, to an approach that I talk to folks about. Um, and uh, there's an acronym that's used in, the, in this kind of context. Um, uh, it's RAIN, R-A-I-N. Um, and so um, R is for um, recognizing, first of all, your emotions. So, um, and uh, A is um, uh, kind of accepting and, and allowing those emotions to be there. Um, so, um, I is for in inspecting, investigating. So, Kind of this sense of uh, this idea of uh, um, I'm feeling really sad. What's this about? What's bringing this on? Um, uh, is there something else um, underlying this? Um, so because um, once we when we understand where our emotions are coming from, that's making us sad or angry or worried, um, then it can um, uh, we can have more flexibility or uh, more ability to um, figure out what it is that we need in order to, to address that. Well, and, and I think I've heard it said too, and I think I've heard this acronym before. So before we get to N, um, while we're talking about inspecting and investigating, like sometimes just the sheer act of asking your brain the question, why am I feeling this way? Like is it's enough to 
kind of help get your brain back on board so that it's no longer stuck in this kind of animalistic fight or flight space. And it's now in the logical processing place, which is a lot more, it's a lot easier to navigate our emotions, I think, from that place um, than it is from the, I guess, what sometimes is alluded to as like the monkey brain, so to speak, when like everything just feels everywhere. Um, but that asking the questions, I feel like that makes a huge difference in our, in our ability to process. It's also the way that we understand what's going on with us. So, so I think oftentimes, especially with difficult emotions like anger, sadness, fear, uh, worry, um, we see them as, as bad or negative emotions. Um, when, um, when really all emotions are our body's way of telling us that something important is going on. And, and so when we see our emotions as messages, as things to, um, uh, to, and to, to figure out what is the message that my body is telling me right now, what is this emotion about, um, then, then we learn more about ourselves and, and what it is that we need. So, um, so I, you know, try and kind of, um, help try and get, help people make a shift away from there's good emotions and bad emotions to, oh, these are emotions. These are messages. What is this message here right now trying to tell me? Um, um, and so, um, yeah, so that's, so that investigating what is, um, what is this emotion about? What's this, uh, what's going on right now? You're right. Is a way of, I use the words kind of connecting our emotional brains with our, you know, thinking brains. And, uh, uh, and it, you're right. It does kind of shift the emotional tone then, um, of, of what you're experiencing. And then the end, um, uh, refers to, um, Kind of nurturing or um, um, and this idea of I, um, I'm feeling this difficult emotion or this emotion right now. Um, what is it that I need? Um, uh, what is it that I need right now to take care of myself? And maybe that's, you know, I need to go do something to take my mind off. Uh, it might mean I need to, you know, ask my partner for a hug. Um, uh, it may mean um, I need to go do something that um, is, um, will soothe, is soothing to myself, whether that's, you know, listening to something that's soothing, um, you know, feeling, uh, doing, doing a, an activity that's, that nurtures our, our, our soothes ourselves. So, um, so, no, I love that. so, um, so I think that that's a useful, again, acronyms are, um, are helpful and that it reminds us of some tools and strategies that we can use to help ourselves through, through those emotional waves uh, and um, you know, difficult times. No, I think that's so important. And just kind of like as a, as a addition to that is that some people may be more comfortable talking about this. They may be the kind of person who needs to talk through it and they need to vocalize as they're going through this RAIN process, right? They may need to physically be speaking to someone. So sometimes I think that's where a therapist comes in handy. That's where having those trusted friends and family in your circle um, those, you know, fellow patients maybe who you can lean on for support, but also like there's going to be some people who they don't process as well verbally and they, maybe they need to write, maybe they need to draw. Maybe, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that I think that we can let out emotion. Um, some people I know they exercise, they run and they run harder and faster when they're mad and sad than they do when they're, you know, just neutral. <laughs> um, so just recognizing that like, there's no set way, like no perfect way to like 
process your emotions, like just figure out, figure out what do you need and, and be willing to question it and sit with it and try it. And if it doesn't feel right, and if it doesn't feel like it's helpful, then like, that's when, that's when you adjust. That's when you try something different. Um, that's when you, maybe you try a, a support group for the zoom groups that we have on Tuesday nights for the Akira site. Maybe you try meeting in person, um, with somebody who also is going through cancer of any kind or this cancer specifically, like, and, and just, I feel like, um, kind of the overarching message that I hope that we can convey from this is that it's figure outable, right? That we can, we can get through it. We can ask questions. We can adjust. We can try new things. Does it always solve the end game? Does it provide a cure and make it so that we never have to deal with this ever again? Not really, but it at least makes it manageable. And I think that if we can approach this, this kind of idea of protecting our mental health and just navigating this diagnosis, if we can approach it from that perspective, that it is figure outable, even if it's just a tiny piece at a time, then it, it just takes away so much of the, the power that the fear can have on us, I think. And it just gives us back that, that kind of sense of ownership and control, which, you know, we talked about at the beginning is so, so important. Yeah. And, um, and I think along with that, um, is, um, come hope, right. When, um, when things are, um, uh, um, when we, have we have the capacity to um to to use tools to to manage um the ups and downs to deal with difficult things um i think it, it creates some hope and and hope through throughout the cancer journey shifts as well right maybe you know sometimes there's hope for cure sometimes there's hope for long remission sometimes there's hope for um good quality of life um but there's i think there's always um hope and there's um always ways of um of managing difficult things and um uh and finding and you're right finding what works for you um is 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 the key um and you know i think a lot of people who go through cancer find um that um other people um have lots of advice to give to them um you should do this you shouldn't do this uh Try this, uh, and um, um, but ultimately, you're the best. You as an individual are the best person to know what's helpful for you, what works for you, um, and to um, you know, and so um, uh, kind of trust in your own wisdom that uh, that you'll find find a path um, through this. No, I think that's so important, and I apologize. I'm scrolling my phone trying to find something that. I shared it in stories um, for our patients at some point, and I now I can no longer find it, so I'm a little bummed I can't find it. But it, there was a patient that I saw, and I, I just kind of want to address this little this little tidbit here. Um, and it's just this idea that sometimes sometimes when we're trying to you know be positive and we're trying to think positively and and be hopeful, right, about what can happen, sometimes like because our brains are so hardwired to this this place of negativity, sometimes it can almost feel like not impossible, but just like it, it almost feels disingenuine or it feels, it feels somehow like, um, dissonant to say something like, say before a scan, you, you want to say the affirmation or you want to say to yourself, okay, like everything's going to be okay. And it's like, you want to believe that, but there's a huge part of the rest of you that fights against that, right? This dissonance that can happen. And what this one, this one gal in our community, she had shared was she was going into scans and she had been trying to tell herself like, okay, what if everything's okay? And, and instead of that being what ended up kind of being, uh, reasonable to her brain and acceptable to her brain, 
she ended up kind of twist, tweak, tweaking it just a little bit so that it was instead of everything's going to be okay, it was, it might be okay. Like that was to, for her brain, that was more believable. That was more, that was more hopeful feeling than kind of that sense of doomsday. What if that came when she would try to think about what if everything is okay? And so like, I think just recognizing that our brains, those little nuances in the language that we use to describe our experience can really make a big difference in, in how we process and how we show up to things like scans and doctor's appointments, things that can be anxiety ridden experiences. Um, that if we can just kind of tweak the language around them and just play around with it, play with different words, because our, our brains are really good at answering questions and they're really good at listening to whatever words we feed it. Um, and so I feel like if we can just kind of tweak those, then that can help for sure. Yes, um, I agree. And uh, um, yeah, because our brains aren't always going to buy into those those positives. Everything's going to be all right. I'm going to be just fine. Nothing bad's going to happen. Um, you know, um, if, if those things seem a bit um, uh, uh, unreasonable, overly optimistic, our brains aren't going to buy into them and aren't so to be perhaps particularly helpful to us but uh so it's so it's maybe not um so it's finding kind of a more balanced way of thinking of things like this might be okay or um uh or um this is going to be hard but i have ways of managing this Uh, yeah or like this is hard right now but i've done hard things before um and i think those kinds of like kind of those little those little reminders um can kind of take, take again, you know, back to that fight, flight, or freeze response. It just helps take us out of that fight, flight, or freeze response and into a place where, you know, we're not necessarily perfectly calm, but like we're at least in a place that we can put one foot in front of the other and figure out, okay, what's my next step? Yeah. And that's success a lot of times. Yes. Um, Well, do we have just maybe five or 10 minutes that we can talk briefly about boundaries? Okay, because I feel like this is something that can be challenging as a as a patient. Um, sometimes you, and and I think sometimes the the hardest part about it is not knowing what your boundaries are yet because you're in the middle of figuring them out yourself. Um, but just like in talking to loved ones, like we mentioned talking to friends, talking to family, and just sharing about your experience. Well, what happens when it's kind of flipped the other way, right? What if the the person is coming to you and asking you all of these things and talking to you about, here's here's my ideas and here's what you should do and and here's my two cents and have you tried this? Um, how, how do you help patients kind of come to a place where they can recognize, okay, I've hit my mm-hmm. limit. I need a break from talking about cancer. And, and what are maybe some simple phrases that you might, you know, encourage someone to use if they need a break from talking about it or they just, you know, want to do their own thing and not be given medical advice from yes, friends. Yeah. Um, yeah, this comes up so often with um, people I talk to. And um, uh, yeah, and I think um, I think one of the, the boundaries are, uh, is um, you're not obligated to share any information you don't want to share. Talk about your cancer when you're when you don't want to. Um, and, uh, you know, this is um, so so uh, and that's not being you know, kind of rude or selfish, um, that's just, um, that's just, um, recognizing, uh, kind of what, what you need and, uh, and, and being, um, and taking responsibility, um, for that. Um, so I think, um, I think one strategy that can help is to have some, um, 
phrases that uh, that you prepared ahead of time for situations so that when you encounter them, you're, you're you know, you're kind of ready with a response. So, um, so for example, you're maybe at the grocery store and someone comes up to you and, oh, how are you? And, and starts asking, you know, questions about cancer and you might you have a ready response, something like, oh, thanks for um, asking. I'm doing okay, but... Um, uh, but right now I'm um, here to, to get my shopping done and figure out dinner for tonight. You know, so kind of acknowledging their interest, but turning the conversation in a way that signals, um, you know, this is not what I'm here for. Um, this is not what I'm focusing on right now. Um, or someone starts giving medical advice, again, having a, a phrase that you've already prepared, something um, perhaps like, um, I appreciate your interest. Um, I've got a great medical team and they're giving me great advice. Um, so something, again, a, a phrase that you feel um, comfortable saying that, that sends the message that, um, that um, thank you, but I've got it, um, and kind of shuts down, um, shuts down that conversation if it's conversation that you're not wanting to have. Yeah, no, I think that's, those are some really good, just simple, easy, like phrases to use. And we did have one come in through the comments from our live um, listeners. And one of them was, she said, my favorite phrase is, I don't have cancer right now, Um, which is totally applicable for many in our community because the cancer's treated in your eye and hopefully it never metastasizes. So you could go five, 10, 15 years before you have any cancer show up again. And that's complicated to try to explain to someone. So it's sometimes it's just easier to be like, I don't have cancer right now. Like, this is true in the moment. I don't have cancer right now. Like, so, and and that also, again, draws that line gently, like, and in a, you know, in a, in an effective way to tell, um, just to tell them like, Hey, I'm, I'm not having this conversation right now because it's not actually relevant to me. Um, but I think just having, like you said, those prepared responses and, and just recognizing the times that it does come up and that it causes maybe some dissonance or some frustration in a relationship. And then to, you know, investigate, go back to rain, like go back to those investigational feelings of like, okay, why am I feeling so frustrated at this person for talking to me in this way? And then, you know, I think that that's part of what setting boundaries is. It's not knowing ahead of time what you're going to do. It's knowing that if it does happen and you're uncomfortable with it, that you can prevent it happening again in the future. That's what setting the boundary is. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we briefly address that. Um, we are running a lot, like just more than, more than I was planning for. So I apologize for taking so much of your time, but I appreciate all of the, the conversation that we've had. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's, I appreciate you having me on and um, being willing to um, put in from it, this kind of information out there. Cause I think it's really important. Yeah. It's so, so, so important. So vital. Um, do you have maybe like a book or two, a podcast, um, just like really just focused on mental health, uh, trauma, like any of those kinds of things that you would suggest that somebody might go and check out and look up um, as an option? Um, because I know not everyone has the opportunity to meet with a therapist or a psychologist. So books are some some of the ways that I think we can we can get help. Um, yeah, ourselves. absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, uh, along those lines, uh, a shout out to Ann Osborne, who uh, has, um, many of you may know, has um, published a book about oh, There you go. Um, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Anne in Nashville at the conference, and um, uh, I have a copy of her book. And uh, so, uh, so I think that's um, that's a useful resource to address both the kind of medical and, and some of the mental health aspects of, of 
I'm dealing with OM. Um, a couple other books that, that I often recommend to folks as, uh, as ways uh, more in terms of um, coping in general with, with um, trauma or difficult life events. Um, one's called When Life Hits Hard, um, and that's by um, an author uh, named Russ Harris. He's actually a psychiatrist, but um, the, that uh, he focuses on right some strategies to um, to use when uh, when really difficult things happen in life. Um, it's he um, his skills and strategies he talks about are based on an approach to therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, but he writes in a really um, conversational way, uh, makes information I think really digestible and approachable, um, and has some some useful tools. Um, the other book I like is When Things Fall Apart um, by Pema Turdron. Um, she takes she comes from a more Buddhist background, but has a lot of I think really helpful things to um, to say about dealing with. Uh, stress and crisis and trauma and loss. Um, so as so, those two books um, aren't specific to cancer, but I think have, from a mental health perspective, have a lot to offer um, in terms of uh, um, kind of normalizing what we experience, um, the emotions that we experience when we go through crises, and and ways of um, of responding that can be helpful. Oh, I think those are some really good ones. I know I've heard of the Pima Chodron's book, um, When Things Fall Apart. I, I'm not sure if you know yeah. who Brene Brown is, but Brene Brown references, references Pima Chodron like a ton in her podcast and her books. Um, another book that came up to mind when you mentioned the When Life Gets Hard is um, it's called On Fire by John O'Leary. Um, and he talks about his experience as a burn victim and like living with like, I mean, literal head to toe burns, um, on his whole body that he survived miraculously. But I mean, it's, it's the kind of survival that sometimes I'm sure you, you wish that you had not because it's so painful physically and mentally and emotionally in so many ways. Um, so, uh, just wanted to make sure that we offered a couple of resources for people out there. Um, well, I feel like this has been such a good conversation and I hope that everybody who's listening, um, in the recording is able to find some value from this. Um, if someone is in obviously a different area than where you are, um, do you feel like there's pretty much across the board that most oncologists are going to have at least a connection to someone like you that they could at least try to link their patients up with? Or is it kind of unique um, to each location? Each, uh, I think each oncology program is a bit different, but um, but I think um, probably all oncology clinics um, uh, yeah, well, course are aware of the, the mental health impact of cancer and and that could be a good place to start in terms of you know tell me what um, mental health resources are in this or in my community to uh, um, uh, to to help me um, help me cope you know the other thing you know as, as hard as COVID was um, I think one of the things that has come out of it is um, greater accessibility to mental health services through telehealth so it may be that um, there's not a, a therapist in, in your community that's easily accessible, but um, there are now um, uh, programs that offer you know, telehealth um, counseling, and um, so, so that, that can be an option as well. No, I think that's such a good point, like just to look for those possibilities and, and recognize that they are there kind of in thanks to some of the difficult things that we've dealt with as a society in the last few years.
Well, I appreciate you and just our live audience. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for listening and for your comments and interaction. Thank you guys again for joining us. And Dr. Singer, I'm going to go ahead and let you get back to the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.